to the DC Debrief for Friday, September 8th, 2023. I'm your host, John Stolness, and coming up, the Senate is back in session and all eyes are on Mitch McConnell's health. Wrangling over Ukraine funding, North Korea and Russia's partnership develop, Trump and the 14th Amendment, and we'll take a deep dive into our upcoming $2 trillion budget deficit with Mark Goldwine from the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. That's all coming up and more on this edition of the DC Debrief. But just a reminder, friends, we're a new podcast, so it helps us out a lot if you tell a friend or a family member about the DC Debrief, if this is something that you like and you think it might be something they'll like. You know, this is a podcast where we try to bring you the straight news every week with the latest of what's been going on in Washington, D.C., and we try to do it without any partisan filters or try to come at it from any kind of angle. This is this is a news dissemination show where we try to give you a little bit of a better understanding of the things going on in Washington and some of the news and issues that will really affect you. So if that if that's singing your song, if that's reading your mail and you think that it's going to be good for somebody else to listen to, grab their phone and put the D.C. debrief in their podcast app, whatever it is they happen to use, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever. If you get a chance, please do that. It would help the podcast grow. All right, everybody, with that out of the way, let's get to the debrief for this week. The Senate is back after a nearly two-month hiatus. The Senate is back in session, and Mitch McConnell's first remarks since his second freeze-up before reporters was garnering all the attention earlier in the week. Uh, Remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, he was at the Senate policy lunch stakeout that they have uh, every week. The senators get together, and they have a luncheon to talk about the different things on their agenda, and then they come out and they meet with Capitol Hill reporters, and they stand by. There's a big clock uh, in the Senate. It's called the Ohio clock, and so they call it the Ohio clock stakeout. All right, for anybody who covers these things, that's that's what it is we're we're looking at here. And so Mitch McConnell, during questioning, which he's done a million times before at these Ohio clock stakeouts, was asked a simple question and appeared to freeze and was silent for about 30 seconds, and uh, his fellow senators had to kind of take him off to the side, and then he came back to answer more questions, but it was very strange, and it was odd, and of course, many of you listening already know this. We've talked about this, and it happened again in Kentucky uh, last week, where he froze up in front of reporters as he was being asked a question, and so his health, what's going on with Mitch McConnell, has been at the center of a lot of thought from senators and from those covering the Senate and Congress and Washington, D.C. watchers right now. So, Everybody's eyes were on Mitch McConnell this week as he made his first remarks since that second freeze up in Kentucky. He was asked about his health by reporters following their weekly policy lunch on Tuesday at the Ohio Clock Stakeout, the same location where he had his first freeze up. I'm going to play the full one minute and 30 seconds that he spoke with reporters about that right here. Respectfully, can you tell us what is afflicting you and describe, characterize what is the level of transparency that the people of Kentucky deserve to hear about your condition? Well, I think Dr. Monahan covered... We'd like to hear from you. I I know you are hearing from me. I think Dr. Monahan covered the subject fully. You had a chance to read it. I don't have anything to add to it, and... uh, I think it should answer any reasonable question. But he ruled things out. He didn't rule things. He ruled things out. He didn't tell us what it might have been. Do you know what it is? You've had all these evaluations. What have doctors said is the precise medical reason for those two freeze-ups? What Dr. Monahan's report addressed 
was concerns people might have that some things that happened to me did happen. Well, they didn't. And this, really, I have nothing to add to that. I think you pretty well covered the subject. What do you say to those who are calling on you to step down? Do you have any plans to retire anytime soon? <laughs> I have no announcements to make on that subject. But what do you say to those who are? I, I'm going to finish my term as leader, and I'm going to finish my Senate term. Thank you. So McConnell referenced a letter that was made public by the Senate's attending physician. Uh, Dr. Brian Monahan, and, and Dr. Monahan concluded that there was no evidence that McConnell has a seizure disorder, that he had a stroke, uh, a TIA, or that he has Parkinson's disease. And his freezing and lightheadedness when speaking to reporters of late, some have speculated, and this is not something Dr. Monahan speculated, but other health experts have speculated, could be the result of a concussion that he suffered a few months ago. And at his age, it could continue to have long-lasting effects. Lightheadedness from a concussion or disorientation uh, from the concussion could could be something that's happening. But again, as you just heard, the Senate Minority Leader did not confirm that that's what was going on, and Dr. Monahan did not confirm what it was, simply what it wasn't. As for the Senate's priorities outside of what Mitch McConnell's health situation might be, senators are working on passing a number of bipartisan minibus spending bills in the hopes of trying to stave off a government shutdown when the government runs out of money on September 30th. And the Senate is working with remarkable bipartisanship at the moment. It seems like everybody's kind of rowing in the same direction, a real kumbaya moment here uh, among the senators. Bundling several bills together, dealing with agriculture, the FDA, military construction, and VA measures. And this is all in anticipation of a failure to reach a year-long agreement sometime in the next three weeks. It seems it seems unrealistic that senators, House Republicans, the House as a whole will be able to come together on a year-long funding agreement that would avert a, a, a government shutdown. It's looking like a short-term deal is what we're most likely to get here over the next couple of weeks, and the senators are looking to bundle some of these measures together. However, um, the Senate is working on these short-term spending bills, but the House seems to be more resistant to that. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said on Thursday that GOP leadership are considering attaching billions of dollars in disaster relief to a short-term stopgap spending bill, but would leave out Ukraine aid. That's different from the supplemental spending bill that senators won, Schumer and McConnell. They've both publicly supported continuing to fund the war in Ukraine and natural disaster relief. House the House Republicans want do not want Ukraine funding to be a part of any supplemental and so when Republicans in the Senate and in the House come together on this, they're going to have to try and figure something out there, even just to get this supplemental uh, that the president wants. Senate leaders in both parties want to pass Biden's full $40 billion of supplemental spending, which, again, would go to the things we just mentioned, would go to Ukraine, would go to natural disaster relief and border security. And they're hoping to get that done by the end of the month. But uh, there is a lot of wrangling left to be done, and that's going to be a lot of the conversation over these next few weeks, especially as the House gavels back into session next Tuesday. Can these two sides get together on a short-term government funding bill, say, till November? 
that will avoid a government shutdown here at the end of the month. Can they kick the can down the road for a couple of months? Can they at least do that? Can they at least agree to kick the can down the road? Not come up with a budget, but at least kick the can down the road a little bit here. That's the first thing. And then this supplemental spending bill that would again go to Ukraine, border relief, and uh, and disaster relief, which again, with everything that's happened in Maui and with some of these severe storms, and we've got another nasty hurricane, look like it's churning towards the United States next week. Uh, disaster relief funding could be even more of an urgent need. So all of these different things are going to be tackled here in the Senate and the House here over the next few weeks. Speaking of Ukraine... Blinken in Kyiv. Secretary of State Blinken made a surprise visit to Ukraine's capital this week to continue their to, to continue to show support uh, to that embattled nation and to announce one billion dollars in additional aid for Ukraine's defensive war effort. I'm here first and foremost to demonstrate our ongoing and determined support for Ukraine as it deals with this aggression. Um, we've seen good progress in the counteroffensive. It's very heartening. We want to make sure that Ukraine has what it needs not only to succeed in the counteroffensive, but has what it needs for the long term to make sure that it has a strong deterrent, strong defense capacity, so that in the future, aggressions like this don't happen again. And we're also determined to continue to work with our partners as they build and rebuild a strong economy, a strong democracy, all of which is necessary to ensure that Ukraine not only survives, but it thrives in, in the future. The visit comes on the heels of Russian miss missile attacks in Kyiv and in eastern Ukrainian town. Uh, the missile attack in this Ukrainian town uh, targeted a busy pedestrian shopping street and killed 17 people, including a child. Uh, Romanian President Klaus Johannes also said on Wednesday that fragments of what could be a Russian drone were found on Romanian soil, and uh, the Romanians are calling that a violation of their territory. So um, something to keep an eye on there. Romania is, of course, a NATO ally. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan was asked about Congress's appetite for more Ukraine funding. The strong bipartisan support for Ukraine in the Congress, in both the House and the Senate, uh, has been on evidence, has been on display, not just in the past votes for Ukraine funding, but in the current public statements of critical members of both parties in really important positions in the Senate, as well as key chairs of committees in the House. And so we believe that there is still, while there are some dissonant voices, a strong core on a bipartisan basis of support for ensuring that we continue to provide Ukraine with the support that it needs because it's fundamentally in America's national interest to do so. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham criticized House Republicans who want to try and stop funding for Ukraine. He compared it to President Biden's botched withdrawal from Afghanistan, which House Republicans have been ripping the president for repeatedly since it happened. And he says, well, allowing Putin to get away with this is Afghanistan on steroids. So he's essentially saying if we don't fund Ukraine and give them the money they need to hold off Putin, it's going to be just as bad, if not worse, than what happened in Afghanistan uh, a couple of years ago. And he wondered if any of those House GOP members had ever read a book on World War II. The Biden administration announced they are sending controversial depleted uranium munitions to Ukraine. And what are these things and why are they controversial? Well, these depleted uranium munitions are armor-piercing rounds that can penetrate Russian tanks. The UK has already sent them some of these munitions, but this would be the first time the U.S. 
has done this. Now, depleted uranium is a byproduct of uranium enrichment. And the U.S. says it doesn't pose any active health threat, but opponents like the International Coalition to Ban Uranium Weapons, says there are dangerous health risks for the people who use it, such as cancer, just from touching or ingesting this depleted uranium dust. And, of course, these munitions come just a few weeks after the United States also decided to sell controversial bunker buster bombs to Ukraine. So uh, the United States, uh, it seems as though generating a little bit of controversy at the moment with some of the munitions they want to send to Ukraine, let alone the battle that's going to go on in the House and the Senate over sending money to Ukraine and continuing to fund their war effort. North Korea and Russia partnership. It sounds as though North Korean leader Kim Jong-un is getting ready to board the bullet train again, preparing to meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin as the two nations discuss a weapons-sharing deal. CBN News' George Thomas has more. The last high-level meeting of this kind happened in April 2019, when North Korea's leader, who very rarely ventures outside his country, took an armored train from Pyongyang to visit Putin in the eastern Russian city of Vladivostok. Experts say the reclusive Kim Jong-un will likely take the same route later this month. I think that it comes at the time when Russia is increasingly globally isolated. According to new U.S. intelligence, a sanction-strapped Moscow is seeking to buy artillery shells, anti-tank missiles and rockets from Pyongyang to replenish its stockpile diminished in its war against Ukraine. Russia is negotiating potential deals for significant quantities and multiple types of munitions from the DPRK to be used against Ukraine. There's talk that both countries might even hold joint war games. Former U.S. Army General and CIA Director David Petraeus warns the West needs to up its economic pressure against the Kremlin. Russia is obviously desperate for replacement munitions, replacement weapon systems, even microchips and everything else. And as a general comment, um, we are and should even be doing more uh, to make sure that the export controls and various sanctions that have been imposed are enforced. News of a potential meeting with Kim follows leaked documents released last month that reportedly show Putin reaching out to the Iranians as well to help Russia build more than 6,000 attack drones for its ongoing war. There is no other way to look at that uh, than desperation and weakness. For his part, Kim Jong-un wants a number of items in return, including sophisticated military hardware, with technology that could potentially advance North Korea's ballistic and nuclear program. North Koreans are looking for uh, economic support, uh, fuel, food, uh, sources of cash, uh, anything that can help to keep the regime afloat. And Russia seems to be ready to provide that, even through violation of the UN sanctions. In July, Kim Jong-un opened his country to foreign visitors for the first time since the COVID pandemic and welcomed Russia's defense minister, Sergei Shogu, as his first guest. They attended an arms exhibition in Pyongyang, which included a prominent display of North Korea's latest Hwasong intercontinental ballistic missile. The Kremlin has offered a no comment thus far on the speculation of a meeting between the two leaders. 
2024 latest. Well, this is a politics podcast, and so we would be remiss if we didn't catch you up on the latest news on the campaign trail. It's been kind of a slow week, actually. But especially now that we've passed Labor Day, this has traditionally been the unofficial start of the campaign season. So kind of interesting that it's been a little bit quiet. Uh, Vice President Mike Pence held a big speech this week where he talked about uh, old school conservatism and the new populist style of Republicanism and the merits of old school conservatism. Of course, uh, guys like Vivek Ramaswamy and former President Donald Trump more towards the populist side of the party. And there's this growing divide. We talked to David Brody about it a couple weeks ago here on the podcast on the future direction of the Republican Party, the old school and the new school. CBN's Caitlin Burke gives us the lay of the land as the campaigns kick into gear. According to a recent Wall Street Journal poll, Trump leads the GOP field by more than 45 points, and he's the top choice for nearly 60 percent of Republican voters. But will he be on each state's ballot? A Washington-based watchdog group filed a lawsuit Wednesday seeking to bar the former president from the 2024 ballot in Colorado, citing a provision of the 14th Amendment. Meanwhile, Wednesday in New Hampshire, former Vice President Mike Pence predicted the 2024 election will determine the future of the conservative party and called on fellow Republicans to reject the, quote, siren song of populism championed by Trump. Should the new populism of the right seize and guide our party, the Republican Party we've long known will cease to exist. And the fate of American freedom would be in doubt. On the Democrat side, President Joe Biden faces no real opposition, despite concerns about his age and performance. On CBS's Face the Nation, GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley said anyone running for elected office over the age of 50 should have to take a mental competency test. We can't worry about Mitch McConnell being frozen at a podium. We can't have Joe Biden forget where he is. Our enemies are watching all of this, and every time they have an instance like that, America is less safe. The next major campaign event comes later this month at the second Republican debate. Trump previously said he will not be doing the debates, but it's unclear if that statement was referring to all of them or just the first one. Trump and the 14th Amendment. Well, Caitlin's piece a moment ago talked a little bit about some of Trump opponents looking to the 14th Amendment as a way to keep him off the ballot. White House correspondent Abigail Robertson adds to that part of the story. Asa Hutchinson tells CBN News while he supported Trump twice before, he now believes Trump is ineligible to even run this time around. Things changed after January 6th and leading up to it whenever he refused to recognize that we ought to transfer power in a peaceful fashion under our democracy. And to me, this was not consistent with our Constitution. He specifically points to Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which states an elected official cannot assume office if they have taken an oath to support the Constitution of the United States, then engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the U.S., or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. The voters in a very difficult position, they'll be voting in uh, Iowa, New Hampshire, and even on Super Tuesday without knowing the outcome of the cases. And it sets it up where uh, if it's not determined early, later on he could be the nominee and there could be a lawsuit that he's actually ineligible. Two law professors from the Federalist Society, a key conservative legal group, studied this subject for more than a year. Their research concluded the Civil War era amendment can still be enforced today 
stating it disqualifies former President Donald Trump and potentially many others because of their participation in the attempted overthrow of the 2020 presidential election. I think they're wrong for a number of reasons. Hans von Spakovsky from the Heritage Foundation strongly disagrees. Donald Trump has never been convicted. He's never even been charged with insurrection or rebellion, trying to suddenly claim that he's guilty of insurrection or rebellion and th those circumstances just doesn't work. Spakovsky also believes upcoming lawsuits to keep Trump off state ballots will not work, citing prior unsuccessful efforts using Section 3 to disqualify other elected officials involved in January 6th, such as Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene and Senator Ron Johnson. Hunter Biden indictment coming. The special counsel overseeing the Hunter Biden case, David Weiss, told a judge this week they anticipate indicting the president's only remaining son on a gun charge. Prosecutors say Biden lied on a gun application form by saying no when he was asked if he had any alcohol or drug problems. At the time he filled out this form, it was 2018, he in fact did. The expected charges come after an original plea agreement collapsed back in July. Biden was expected to plead guilty in July to two misdemeanor tax counts of willful failure to pay federal income tax as part of a plea deal to avoid jail time on a felony gun charge. Proud Boys record jail sentence. Former head of the Proud Boys, Enrique Tarrio, was sentenced to 22 years in prison for his role in the January 6th plot to prevent Joe Biden from becoming president and keeping Donald Trump in power. This is the harshest sentence handed down for anyone charged with a crime for the attack on the Capitol that day. Prosecutors say as head of the Proud Boys, Tarrio planned and oversaw a coordinated effort to mount a physical and violent attack on the Capitol with the goal of preventing them from moving forward forward with the peaceful transfer of power. The 39-year-old was convicted in May of seditious conspiracy and some other crimes as well. Tario asked the judge for leniency and said January 6th was a, quote, national embarrassment, and he apologized to the police officers who defended the Capitol that day. Now, defenders of Tario argued that the prison sentence was far too harsh, seeing as how he was not at the Capitol on January 6th. But prosecutors who had been seeking 33 years in prison for him said he organized Proud Boys members who were among the first to breach the historic building and who temporarily prevented Congress from counting the Electoral College votes that certified the election. Tario at the trial argued that he was blamed for the riot after President Trump inflamed the mob. He was in Baltimore on the day of the attack, and he says he didn't direct anyone to assault police or destroy property, and his lawyers proposed a sentence of no more than 15 years. So the judge went over and beyond that number, but found a middle ground between the defense's number and what the prosecution wanted. Tario's 22-year sentence tops the 18-year sentences given to the founder of the Oath Keepers, Stuart Rhodes, and one-time Proud Boys leader Ethan Nordeen for their roles in the January 6th riot. All right, that's your debrief, and now let's get into our deep dive for the week. We found out this week that the federal deficit, after a year in which it shrunk dramatically, is set to increase by $2 trillion next year. Joining me to talk about why this is happening and what could potentially be done to mitigate it is Mark Goldwine. He's the Senior Vice President and Senior Policy Director for the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Mark, thank you for coming on the DC Debrief. How are you? Uh, I'm doing great. How are you? 
I'm doing real good. Thank you. And um, this was this caught a lot of people by surprise, it seems, because generally speaking, when you have an economy that's growing, you don't see the deficit expand the way that it looks like it's going to next year. So can you kind of break this down for us and, and give us some idea of why this is happening? So prior to the pandemic, we were running trillion dollar a year deficits. And that was that was really high, frankly. Um, but that was the normal. And then we had all the COVID relief, the unemployment, the checks, the PPP, remember it. And for a couple of years, we were earning three trillion a year deficits. Last year, we came back down to a trillion. And what we thought was, well, this is back to normal. This is just back to our normal high deficits. But it turns out two trillion is the new normal. Um, last year's deficit of one trillion was kind of an aberration. We got it. It was only so low because we had very high capital gains realization, meaning people were selling a lot of stocks. We had big inflation, which actually boosts taxable income before the tax code catches up. Um, and we had these other one-time factors. But this year, we're projecting deficits are about to be $2 trillion. And that's not mostly because of one-off things. That's mostly because $2 trillion, unfortunately, is the new normal. Mm, and that's... That's a lot. Uh, and I think most people recognize that that's a lot. And most people recognize that's that's unsustainable. So if you're looking at last year really just kind of being the the aberration and, and not the norm, then the $2 trillion number for next year is, generally speaking, from what it sounds like you're saying, what we can expect moving forward even after next year, unless something radically changes. That's right. So the $2 trillion is actually what, what it's going to be for this year, when this year is up. And then next year, you know, maybe it'll be a little bit lower. Maybe it'll be 1.7 trillion or something like that. But I think we're going to be in roughly two trillion dollar deficits for for several years. And then if you look over the longer run, um, what we see is eventually deficits are going to start to really explode to three trillion, maybe even four trillion. Um, particularly as Social Security and Medicare costs continue to rise, our interest costs are growing. It's the fastest growing part of the budget, and tax revenue just isn't growing particularly quickly. Um, it's falling way short of our spending. So obviously, whenever you're budgeting, and as someone, I, I budget, and one of the things you look at offense and defense, right? Offense is how much money can, can you bring in? How much money can you earn? And then the other is how much money can you save by reducing your spending? And so there's two there's two sides to this. So um, let's talk about revenue income first. What are, what are some ways that the government could generate more revenue, generate more income. I mean, taxes is obviously going to be the first thing that pops to mind, but it's exceedingly unpopular in, in the electorate that in an electorate that's dealing with inflation and with a House of Representatives that's dominated by Republicans right now. So how do they go about generating more revenue? Uh, so here's the reality. Um, the United States is a relatively low tax country, and yet we keep passing more tax cuts. Um, this is especially one party, but honestly, it's really both parties keeps passing more and more tax cuts. Um, and so one thing I think we could do as a starting point is stop renewing those tax cuts. So a huge number of those tax cuts actually expire at the end of 2025, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act from 2017. In my opinion, some of those were really good policy that we should extend. Some of them were really bad policy that we should let expire. Some were okay policy that we should improve, we could improve. But uh, the first step would be don't extend that as is, because if we do, that's another three and a half trillion dollars added to the debt. Um, let's find a ways to do smart extensions that don't lose us any revenue. Uh, number two, we should look at tax breaks uh, there. We call these tax expenditures because we really do a lot of spending in the tax code. We subsidize all sorts of activities, whether it's 
healthcare or mortgages or um, education or buying bonds. And we don't always subsidize them very efficiently. And so there's so much room to cut these tax breaks in ways that would actually um, improve the choices that people make, stop distorting business behavior, stop inflating healthcare and housing costs. And, and I think that's the best place to go. Beyond that, um, we may need to look to either raise rates or to look at some kind of new tax, like maybe a carbon tax or a value added tax. Uh, I don't think those are in the political cards for now, but if the situation gets bad enough, they may have to be. Right. And, and politically speaking, um, those are real, some of those, ta- even the ending of those tax cuts, uh, there, there's going to be conservatives, Republicans fighting tooth and nail to stop that from happening. And of course, they'll argue that the problem is spending. We need to cut spending. And that there's there's no doubt that that has to be a part of any solution, too. So from from where you sit, what are some ways, some some reasonable and and ways that could actually happen in real life that we could actually cut some spending and in order to get the deficit under control? So we actually took a good first step this year when on a bipartisan basis, we passed the Fiscal Responsibility Act because that bill said that the appropriators can no longer spend whatever they want on the defense budget and on the core non-defense budget. They're capped. But those caps only last for two years. So we need to extend and build upon those caps to prevent the appropriator free-for-all. But the reality of the situation is what's driving our debt isn't defense spending. It's not government employees or welfare. It's health and retirement programs. Mm. And so what we really need to do is make Social Security solvent. You know, Social Security is only 10 years from running out of money, from the trust fund running out of money. So we got to get those benefits and revenue in line. We can do that a little bit by people contributing more, but we should also look at adjusting the retirement age over time, slowing benefit growth for high earners, other things like that. Um, And then we got to lower health care costs. And there are so many ideas that were in both the Obama budgets and the Trump budgets. There's such a wide recognition that we are spending too much on health care and there's so much waste in the system that we ought to start with that before we, you know, cut anyone's benefits on the healthcare side. Well, do you have any examples of that? Like what, what are some ways that we're wasting money on health care? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a couple. Um, if you go to a doctor's office that is owned by a hospital, Medicare pays more than if you go to a private doctor's office giving you the exact same treatment. Um, so we literally, for the exact same healthcare intervention, pay more if it just happens to be owned by a hospital. We gotta cut that, that doesn't make any sense. Nobody thinks that makes any sense. Uh, we also have in Medicare, these Medicare Advantage plans. It's a private alternative to Medicare. Uh, in many ways, they're more efficient than Medicare because they can, they can manage care, and yet they cost the federal government about 10% more. Um, that's because of the way that they're um, they're coding their their patients to look uh, less healthy, and it's because these quality bonuses that were meant to encourage um, good plans, but now everybody takes them. Uh, so we got to cut that excess, cut that fat, and then lastly, the incentives are totally backwards in in Medicare. Uh, people buy these very expensive Medigap plans that are you know um, run by the AARP and the insurance companies that basically take all their skin out of the game. And so then they get a bunch of these extra procedures they don't need, paying way higher premiums for that. If we were just to restrict um, these Medigap plans and reform cost sharing in a way that makes sense, beneficiaries would have um, better involvement in their healthcare decision-making and that could push down costs as well. So outside of healthcare, are there any, are there any other areas of waste that you that you see that the government could maybe get some, extract some savings from, from, from that as well? There, there's, look, healthcare is by far 
the biggest pot. It's the biggest pot of overall spending and of waste. Um, but there's no government program that should be exempt from scrutiny. Um, you know, we spent $5 trillion on COVID relief. And understandably, we wanted to get the money out in 2020 as fast as possible. And so we didn't worry about making sure it got to exactly the right person. But now in the year 2023, we ought to be figuring out who was defrauding the system and trying to get that money back. You know, we ought to have coherent eligibility rules for unemployment and for food stamps um, and for Medicaid, um, where we're actually giving benefits to people that are supposed to get benefits. Uh, by the way, Medicaid um, also has another major problem, which is that states essentially cheat. The way that Medicaid works is it's jointly funded by the federal government and the states, but the states run it and they declare how much things cost. They have all sorts of tools they can use to basically inflate their cost to legally steal money from the federal government. We got to close those. We got to close those loopholes. Um, the federal government should reimburse the states based on what they actually pay, not these make-believe numbers based on accounting tricks. Interesting. So it sounds. I mean, there there certainly are ways to to kind of bring this down. I guess. I guess now that we're looking at a potential government shutdown here at the end of September, though, do you think that this number will impact negotiations? Should it impact negotiations? Should it impact what legislators are talking about in terms of spending for the next fiscal year? So, look, we got to keep the government lights on, right? It's the, the question of whether the government is running sustainably is a totally different one from whether we should shut it down. Because a shutdown won't save any money. It's just going to create a lot of political hoopla. Um, we're going to pay a bunch of federal workers to not work, right? And then we're going to reopen the government three weeks later. So it's actually going to cost us money because we're paying all these people not to work. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um, now, on the flip side, politicians, since they don't follow the budget process, don't have many opportunities to really talk about debt issues. And so when there is one that comes up, like the need to, to fund the government, that's an opportunity to at least put this on the table. Um, maybe we could be talking about not holding the government hostage for deficit reduction, but coupling funding of the government with a commission to look at some of these bigger issues, right? Or a commitment to have some further conversation on how we're going to get healthcare costs down. Um, we can't just keep letting years go by, ignoring this issue altogether. Well, this is a problem that does not have an easy political solution, and uh, certainly the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget is uh, is keeping us all educated and informed on the state of the deficit and what can be done to help bring it down. Mark Goldwine, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Looking ahead, a big weekend for President Biden as he travels overseas to the G20 summit in New Delhi. Uh, India has been under the spotlight and microscope for a recent surge in anti-Christian uh, crackdowns in that country. And so President Biden will be asked about that uh, while he is attending the G20 summit. Uh, and then he will travel to Vietnam in a historic visit to Hanoi to strengthen economic ties there. Biden said back in July that Vietnam's leader wanted to meet him and that he wanted to change the relationship between the two countries and become a partner. This, of course, comes 50 years after the end of the Vietnam War, and Vietnam is still a communist country. Human rights groups have expressed concerns over the country's restrictions on freedom of expression, association, and the arrests of critics of the government. It's also, though, part of the White House's efforts to mitigate China's and Russia's influence there. China's border is less than 60 miles from Hanoi, and China is Vietnam's biggest trading partner. So the United States seeking an inroad in Vietnam not only to help our own economy, but 
maybe to take a swipe at China as well. And then, of course, uh, later in the week uh, on Tuesday, the U.S. House of Representatives returns from their August recess. And on Wednesday, a major AI forum will be taking place led by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. He's been talking about wanting to educate senators on artificial intelligence, and he's going to be bringing together some of the thought leaders in big tech. Uh, among those attendees, uh, you have SpaceX CEO Elon Musk, of course now the owner of X, which used to be Twitter, Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg, Google CEO Sundar Pichai, and former CEO Eric Schmidt, OpenAI CEO Sam Altman, NVIDIA CEO Jensen Huang, and Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates and CEO Satya Nadella. So this is a a who's who in, in the tech world uh, who are coming together with Senate Majority Chuck, Chuck Schumer and other senators to talk about artificial intelligence. And this will be our deep dive on the podcast next week. You can be sure about that. All right, time for the closer. The high school football coach at the center of a Supreme Court case last year has resigned. Coach Joe Kennedy resigned from his position as an assistant football coach at Bremerton High School in Bremerton, Washington on Wednesday. Uh, he cited multiple reasons, but most of them uh, dealing with taking care of an ailing family member out of state. Kennedy had returned to the sidelines on Friday night after fighting an eight-year legal battle to publicly pray after football games. The Supreme Court ruled last year that he could exercise that right to pray. As CBN News reported, shortly after the game ended, Kennedy did stand at the 50-yard line at Bremerton Memorial Stadium, took a knee, and bowed his head in prayer. Our own David Brody went out there to visit Coach Kennedy for this game and has been all over this story. You can see David's story over at our website, cbnnews.com. And that will do it for this week's edition of the DC Debrief. Again, friends, please make sure to tell a friend or a family member about the podcast. And if you are listening to us on Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star rating and review the show. Let us know what you think. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week right here on the DC Debrief. DC Debrief.